You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Shelby, Axios, Richard, Hartman, The Sextant, Brian, Doc Lindsay, Hangman Strain, AJ, Roger the Jolly, Artemis Killmeister, Captain Crunch, Rotary Coast, MD, Lost Again, The Navigator, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstrap Spain. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. I sometimes feel like I'm too indecisive when it comes to making big, bold statements about historical uncertainties. I always hedge my bets. I like to use phrases like, it's possible that, or many historians think, you know, that kind of thing. I almost never take a really hard stance on something, if there's a question to be asked there. I like to bring up questions and talk about possibilities, but giving hard opinions on historical questions really isn't my job. That's a proper historian's job. I read what those historians write after years of research. You know, I dig into the primary sources a bit as well, but what I don't do is Travel to the Bahamas or London or Bristol so I can sift through endless pages of records of births and deaths and marriages and baptisms. That's work that I'm not qualified to do, and even if I were qualified, I'm not patient enough for it. But I'm glad that we have people who are. Last time, for example, when we talked about Paul's Grave Williams and Samuel Bellamy, we know a decent bit about their early lives because someone dug through all of those old manuscripts. And we're lucky that they did. But today, I'm going to be saying words like, we don't know if, quite a lot. Because we don't know much about the early lives of many of the pirates we're going to be discussing today. Despite... I'm certain endless hours of those historians doing that work, our information is still limited, which suggests it probably just doesn't exist. But that's not going to stop me from trying. I want to begin today with 
who will become probably the most famous, the most feared, the most notorious pirate ever to sail the high seas? Steed Bonnet. This is episode 281, Interesting Times, part 2. I'm just messing with you, it's Blackbeard we're talking about. We are going to talk about Steed Bonnet as well, but I want to begin with Edward Teach. We know almost nothing about the early life of Edward Teach. We don't even know if that's really his name. I mean, it's probably not. As far as I know, there are no reputable surviving documents on which Edward Teach signed his name. There have been forgeries in the past, but mostly those have all been debunked by now. And it's a shame we don't have something. You know, we can be confident that Henry Every's name was Henry Every, because he signed his name twice on Royal Navy documents, Henry Every. The reason he was known for so long as Henry Avery is because that's what Captain Charles Johnson wrote in A General History of the Pirates, and the disconnect there is a dialectic distinction. It's a difference between accents. Henry Avery, who was from the West Country, pronounced his name Avery. Charles Johnson, who was from somewhere else, pronounced the name Avery, and thus we have different spellings. When we get to Blackbeard, though, he has so many different names. In his 1974 book, Blackbeard the Pirate, historian Robert E. Lee writes, quote, There are numerous spellings of the latter name, such as Thatch, Thack with a C-H, Thach, Thack with a K, Tack, Thach with a C-H-E, and Thach. Teach is the most commonly encountered, and for this reason most historians have identified him by that name. End quote. Now we're going to follow in that tradition. We're going to call him Edward Teach. And we'll be in good company in that. Angus Constam and David Cordingly, both pirate historians, use the name Teach. But that's not what everyone does. You know, reputable writers use other versions. Colin Woodard calls him Thatch. And I almost chose Thatch. You know, in traditionally English names, we get a lot of surnames from the profession that some random peasant had hundreds of years ago. If your last name is Smith, you have an ancestor who was a blacksmith, or maybe a goldsmith. If your last name is Miller, you have an ancestor who was a miller. Mason comes from stonemasons, and a thatcher was a roofer. People that, you know, installed and repaired thatch roofs. So there's a possibility that Blackbeard comes from a long line of roofers. And of course you've got other famous English names like Margaret Thatcher. It's a perfectly acceptable choice to go with, but I prefer Teach. And Teach isn't a super common surname in the English-speaking world. Nor does it have anything to do with teachers. It comes from German, usually a surname, and I'm not 100% sure how to pronounce this, like Tuch, or maybe Tutsk. Which brings up a point, a lot of those names in Robert E. Lee's book ended in a K sound, and traditionally the CH sound often had a K sound, so it might be pronounced Teak instead of Teach, but again, we're going to bow to convention. And we know almost nothing about Edward Teach's birth. 
No records have surfaced that tell us where young Edward was born. Captain Charles Johnson says that he was born in Bristol. Now, there's no evidence to support this claim, but there's also nothing to debunk it either. So that's the convention. That's the answer on the test. But I'd like to explore a couple of other possibilities as well. There's one theory that Blackbeard actually was born in Jamaica. This theory stems from a certain plantation owner, a man who enslaved hundreds of men and women on his sugar plantation. He had a name similar to Teach. There's also the fact that some of the accounts of Blackbeard sacking ships describe him as having a dark face. This has led some people to the possibility that Blackbeard was the child of a white plantation owner and one of the women he enslaved. And Blackbeard famously did accept formerly enslaved people on his ship. Take the pirate known as Black Caesar, for example. His flagship, the Queen Anne's Revenge, was itself a former slave ship. And when he captured her, he either freed or offered a position to those people chained up below decks. But the Queen Anne's Revenge did, later on, at least once trade in human cargo. There's also the fact that Blackbeard retired to North Carolina, where he married a white woman. In 1718, for a person of mixed race, that's not gonna fly. I think that Blackbeard probably was white, and when they talk about his dark face, it was... Maybe, you know, war paint to look scary, or it could have just been soot from all of those burning wicks he had placed around his face. There's another theory that, well, here's me being indecisive again. There's no real hard evidence to support this theory, about the same amount you'll find about Jamaica. Some similar names that suggest, hey, maybe he was born there, I don't know. But I like this theory. Not because I necessarily think it's the most likely or has the most evidence, neither is true, but because it allows me to imagine a version of Blackbeard that I like to imagine. He's a fun character in this version of his story. And it's worth talking about here today because when I talk about Blackbeard, this is who I picture. This is the version of Blackbeard in my head. In this theory, Edward Teach comes from a relatively well-off family in Boston. That's a family that could very possibly know the families of Palsgrave Williams and Thomas Paine. Now, the crux of this theory is that Edward Teach, or Thatch, or Thake, or whatever, that that was a false name. It was an alias that Blackbeard chose. Because in this theory, Blackbeard would have, you know, a mother and father and brothers and sisters back in Boston, and they all went to church. They owned a business. They had lives that would be ruined if the world found out that Blackbeard was their son. So he took on a fake name, and I even like the possibility that, you know, maybe that's why there are so many different versions of the name. Maybe he pronounced it slightly differently every time. I think the big reason, though, that I really like this theory is because of who Blackbeard was. It's weird that Blackbeard would burn wicks arrayed around his face so that his eyes glowed amidst a wreath of smoke. It's weird that he painted his face and lit barrels of brimstone so that his massive pirate ship was billowing smoke whenever it approached a prize. That's, that's weird, right? 
I mean, that's theater. We don't ever really see any other pirates doing that kind of thing, not to that extent. A talented pirate, someone who was good at their job, knew how to approach a prize to seem unthreatening, and knew just the right moment, psychologically speaking, to raise the black that would terrify their prey the most, and at that point, all their men would look terrifying, menacing, raise their sabers, and scream bloody murder. That's scary, and that's purposeful. But none of those people tried to look like the actual devil. You know, they wanted to be scary, but not Lucifer scary. But that's what Blackbeard was going for. And I wonder about that. I wonder why Blackbeard was so different. So imagine this. Imagine that you're a nice 12-year-old Puritan boy. You're living in Boston, and you like to read, mostly the Bible. But then, one day, all of a sudden... There's witches, y'all. There are witches everywhere, all around you. Every single grown-up you know is just kind of freaking out because of these witches and the devil in Massachusetts. This hypothetical 12-year-old Ed Teach would have seen the effect that the devil had on respectable people. There were stoic, austere, wig-wearing magistrates that were terrified out of their minds by a group of teenage girls. These girls manipulated these pillars of the community just by invoking the name of Satan. It drove people crazy. And if you see that, if that's your life experience, I mean, think of the possibilities. Also, it's important to note here that Blackbeard could read and write, his association with Steed Bonnet is often characterized as a strong pirate manipulating and using a quote-unquote pirate. But I think on some level they were friends. I think it's possible that Blackbeard saw in Steed Bonnet a guy who really wasn't so dissimilar from himself. A young man from a relatively well-off family who liked reading and the theater. A young man who got some crazy ideas from the adventure stories he liked to read. The difference, though, is that Blackbeard probably went to sea when he was still very young. As a privateer, most likely. He learned the trade before he became a pirate captain. Steed Bonnet, on the other hand, just bought a ship, hired a crew, and called himself a pirate. But that version of Blackbeard, a literate young man who understood the power of a good story, that's the Blackbeard that I like. Is that who he really was? Well, you know, we don't know. He could just as easily have been a street urchin from Bristol, but we're going to look at that life when we get to Charles Vane. For now, in the summer of 1699, our Edward Teach was a boy of 18 years old with a comfortable home life. But in about a year, the whole world is going to descend into war. Again, Queen Anne is going to put out a call for privateers to sail in her name, and Ed Teach is going to do something crazy and sign up. Probably. I think so, anyway. You know, we don't really know. But that brings us to the quote-unquote pirate who is inexorably tied to Blackbeard. 
the gentleman pirate Steed Bonnet. We're not going to spend a lot of time on Steed Bonnet, although we do know a fair bit about his early years. Most of the interesting stuff there comes from when he gets a bit older. By 1699, when Blackbeard was already a young man, Steed Bonnet was still only 11 years old. He was born on the island of Barbados in 1688, as the son of the owners of a relatively wealthy sugar plantation. I want to delve into some of the psychohistory about growing up around dozens or maybe even hundreds of enslaved people, but I also want to acknowledge it's a little bit gross. All kind of boo-hoo, oh look at this kid who has to feel kind of bad while he eats his soup with a silver spoon. And when Steed Bonnet was given the opportunity, and he had it for some years, he did not release the people he enslaved. But I think that that role probably shaped the person he was. See, Steed Bonnet was put in charge of his family's plantation when he was only six years old. Naturally, he wasn't actually doing the day-to-day -day running of the operations, but his father passed away and left the plantation in his name. He was told, honestly, that this was now his responsibility. And it's gotta kinda mess with your head when you're six years old to have your family tell you that you are now in charge and you have to have these people beaten. Well, not people, their property, but you have to beat them if they step out of line. However, you can't beat them too much or they'll rise up and kill us all. I mean, what does that do to a six-year-old boy? For all the societal pressures that were on him, telling him this is normal and natural and God's plan and blah, 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 that's still got to be hard to process. And if you found yourself in that position, you might just want to escape. And I think that's what Steed Bonnet did. Not physically. He didn't run away. Instead, he escaped into books. Every record that we have of the young Steed Bonnet describes him as timid, sensitive, and bookish. Now, he was still only 11 years old in 1699, so we will wait to deal with his sexuality, but we know he liked to read. Even later on, when he was a pirate, reading books was a big part of his story. You know, he'd come out on board in his dressing gown with a book under his arm and a pipe in his hand and be like, Yes, yes, gentlemen, how is everything? Going well? Very good. And then he'd go back into his cabin and keep reading his book. But for now, in 1699, he's an 11-year-old boy, ostensibly running a sugar plantation and reading his books about adventure, often adventure on the high seas. All the while, his mother is trying desperately to get him to toughen up. You know, put that book down and go beat that small child because they passed out from the heat. What are you, some kind of wimp? That's not what Steed Bonnet wanted to do. He wanted his books, and maybe the urge to run away for real was finally beginning to creep in. Finally, on that side of the ledger, we're going to look at Benjamin Hornigold.
It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. We know almost nothing about Benjamin Hornigold before he appears in the historic record as a pirate. There are a couple of reports that he was from Norfolk, which means that he was, at the least, probably English. And the consensus seems to be that, come the War of the Spanish Succession, he would serve as a privateer. But it's not impossible to imagine him serving in the Royal Navy during the Nine Years' War. Now, he was probably about the same age as Blackbeard, so he wouldn't have been, you know, a grown man at that point. But by about 1694, when Hornigold would have been 14, the Navy needed men, and they would have taken him on if he signed up. The characterization of Benjamin Hornigold tends to paint him as a bit more patriotic than his fellow pirates. We'll get into the reasoning behind that, but there are even some reports of Hornigold wearing an English sea officer's coat. And maybe that coat actually belonged to him. It's possible that he did serve in the Navy before becoming a privateer and then a pirate. Now let's turn the page to the other side of the coin. Wait. Yeah, it works. If you're not sure what I'm talking about when I'm discussing the two different sides here, there's going to be a pretty distinct factional division among the pirates at Nassau. On the one hand, we have the pirates we've introduced so far. Sam Bellamy, Paulsgrave Williams, Blackbeard, Steed Bonnet, all of them falling in behind Ben Hornigold. Now, that's not everyone, but those are the big names. The other major Nassau faction would be said to follow a pirate named Henry Jennings. Much like Cornigold, we don't know really anything about Henry Jennings' early life. Jennings probably wasn't English. Most likely, he was Scottish, and his faction had a lot of Scots in it, as well as a number of people from the other nations within the recently unified United Kingdom. However, Most of those people didn't seem to be very happy about the unification. This group of pirates under Henry Jennings would be 
much more willing to attack British shipping than those under Ben Hornigold. It's almost as though this group were inciting incidents with the English on purpose. I'm saying that this second group seemed to have a much more distinctly revolutionary bent, and I think much of that comes down through their mentor, Henry Jennings. See, Henry Jennings, a Scot, was very probably a devout Jacobite. And I think he was in it for the revolution. I think he had a political end to his decision to turn pirate. But that's not the case, I think, for his protege, Charles Vane. Charles Vane signed up with Henry Jennings because that meant he got to hunt the English, but he wasn't doing so to try to put someone else on the throne. I don't think he cared who was on the throne. I think Charles Vane wanted to hunt the English to hurt the English. You know that thing you sometimes run into when reading about history in which a group of, you know, maybe revolutionaries or maybe a group of enslaved people or Welsh miners in Roman Britain, that kind of dispossession. But when they rise up and attack their oppressors and what they do is shocking. We're talking about dismemberment. Impaling. Raping people to death. I mean, it's horrifying. But then you remember you're only hearing the one side because it's those oppressors that write history. What was done to those people was also horrible. All of those horror stories you hear about what happens when they rise up, that's revenge for generations of equally horrific treatment. That's what I think about when I think about Charles Vane. Imagine a young boy growing up on the streets of a place like Wapping. That's the district in London that houses all the dockyards, where all the sailors lived. It was not a nice place to call home. Every corner had a girl working to earn her living. The alleys were filled with drunks too inebriated to stand. There were syphilitics and lepers. The streets ran with awful from the many butcher shops and tanneries, and the rivers were coated in a thick film of human waste. If you were a young boy, an orphan, likely, what would you have to do to survive in a place like that? Would you have to rob people? Well, yeah, that's obvious. That's elementary stuff, you know, learning how to cut purses, do some second-story work, and as you get bigger, you're going to join a gang. You're going to get into things like muggings. What about murder? You know, a mugging can go bad, sure, but a kid who was willing to slip a knife into the right set of ribs could really earn a decent bit of coin. There's a good chance that Charles Vane turned to murder to earn a living. But then we have to think about the other things that orphan boys in places like Wapping did to earn their supper. How they would satisfy the appetites of a certain kind of man who would come to the neighborhood specifically looking for the young homeless orphan boys. And I think we know what kind of man that usually was. The well-dressed kind. Wearing the same kind of fine coats that you might find on a man who was giving you a purse of coin to murder somebody, or maybe asking you to rob a certain article from a certain second story, or even just the merchants who were spewing blood and filth into the streets and making a whole lot more money than you thought you would ever see in your life. Certainly the same kind of coats worn by the men who would arrest you, beat you, maybe cut off your hands if they caught you stealing a loaf of bread. 
Charles Vane was almost certainly born in London. It's very likely that he was an orphan from a young age. If that was the case, he would have lived a hard, hard existence. You know, there were plenty of young girls who were living an equally difficult existence in the same neighborhood. Many fewer of them were able to survive unless they could find a house, by which I mean a brothel, that would take them in. You had to be tough to make it through that, and you had to do tough things to make it to adulthood. Charles Vane was tough. If that was the life that you led, don't you think you might look for any excuse to do some real harm to those men in fine coats? And a lot of that's assumption. You know, we don't know what Charles Vane's youth was really like, but it is pretty clear that he enjoyed hunting and hurting English merchant, English merchants and their shipping. You know, there's a difference between a man like Blackbeard and a man like Charles Vane. Blackbeard, once you surrendered and he had your cargo, he'd even leave some of that cargo with you. You'd have enough water and food to make it to your port of call, and you could go about your day. Vane liked to burn their ships. He wasn't, you know, torturing and murdering everybody in a sea of blood, but he was attacking their profits. He wasn't trying to hurt the regular crewmen, he was trying to hurt the men who owned those ships. And to be fair, he did. To me, that looks like vengeance. As for the protege of Charles Vane, we know almost nothing about Jack Rackham either. He was English, he was born in the 1680s, but that's about it. I wish I could give you more on him, but I really can't. So I'm going to hold off on talking about him, but I'm also going to hold off on talking about the two pirates with whom he is most closely associated, Mary Reed and Anne Bonny. Anne Bonny wasn't even born yet. And you know, I love the hyper-murderous, tough-as-nails versions we get of Anne Bonny in a lot of media, but it's important to remember that the real Anne Bonny was about 14 years old when she bursts onto the pirate scene. As for Mary Reed, her story is complex. And we've got a fairly spectacular new resource on those two pirates. It's a book called Pirate Queens by Dr. Rebecca Simon. It's wonderful. But thanks to that book, we have a lot more to talk about when we're looking at the early lives of Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. A lot more than we could really cover here in this short segment, so we're going to hold off for now. We're going to finish up today with our look at the early lives of the Golden Age of Piracy Pirates with a third group. Now, these pirates weren't really members of what they call the Flying Gang. Most of them barely spent any time at the Republic of Nassau at all. Some of these pirates were contemporaries of the likes of Blackbeard and Charles Fane. Some of them weren't. Some of these people didn't come around until after the Republic at Nassau had fallen. These were among the last of the pirates in what we know as the Golden Age. But that's not all they had in common. It was a cohesive group of pirates, and they shared a few other things in common, namely that none of them were English. Of course, there were English crewmen on board, but for the names we're about to talk about, all of them are verifiably not from England. 
Let's start with the Frenchman, Labouze. We see a lot fewer French pirates during the Pirate Republic at Nassau. In part, that's because most of these pirates got their start in a war between England and France. There was a lot of bad blood there. But it's also because the French were much better at making sure their privateers came home after their wars were over. But that did not work with Labouze. He was born Olivier Lavoisier, shortly before the beginning of the Nine Years' War. He was reportedly born in or around Calais. That would mean that Lavoisier lived most of his early life in an actual active war zone. Calais is in northern France, on the coast, close to modern-day Belgium, what was then called the Spanish Netherlands. All of this was contested territory during the Nine Years' War. Calais itself was put under siege for some time. Still, though, his family did pretty well. They secured Olivier an education, and he was on track to become an architect. Which, you know, in a region recently devastated by warfare, not bad work when you can get it. And that's what he was up to in 1699, getting that education, probably at an age where he was about to graduate and go on to work at, you know, somewhere, probably his uncle owned a firm or some such. But it was only a couple of years later when war broke out again. Instead of going into architecture or possibly getting conscripted into the Navy, Olivier Lavoisier would take on a job with a local privateer. The buzzard, Labouze, is an interesting character, but this origin story is a lot like what we see in all of these other pirates. He was about 20 years old when war broke out, and he decided to sign up on board a privateer. But we'll find a somewhat different story if we look to the north, all the way to Ireland, in the person of a pirate called Edward England. Edward England was Irish, and probably a Catholic. He was born Edward Seagar. It's a real shame that he decided to change his name. Seagar is a Viking name in origin. And gar is the Norse word for a spear. In a word like garlic, that literally means spear leak. It reminded the Vikings of a leak, and it looked kind of like the head of a spear. Seagar literally meant sea spear, which is objectively a cooler name than Edward England. Then again, this whole story gets confused with another pirate named Jasper Seagar. Jasper Seagar was also Irish and also sailed near the end of the Republic at Nassau. Both he and Edward would sail the old pirate round after they left the West Indies. The question is, are they actually different pirates? And honestly, we don't know. Maybe, but maybe not. The big difference is that Jasper Seagar, who may also have been named Jasper Setor, it's all very confused, but Jasper may have been a Jacobite. As far as we know, Edward England, a.k.a. Edward Seagar, never exhibited any such political leanings. However, regardless of their politics, whether they were one pirate or two, Edward Jasper Setor Seagar England was Irish, and whether they were a Jacobite or an Irish nationalist, they hated England. Which, you know, wasn't uncommon in Ireland. Which is the case for all these pirates in this final group. We're going to find two more 
such pirates when we turn our eyes back to mainland Britain. There we find a pair of Welsh pirates that were in that same group that came later on. The first was named Howell Davis. Wales was famous for producing three things. First, wool. They made a lot of wool. And that's important for sailors in that it made their coats and their hats. But beyond that, Wales was famous for timber. They had really good oak trees, which were used in the construction of a ship's hull, and they had the Scots pine, which was often used for making a ship's mast. The third thing for which Wales was famous were sailors. They made a lot of sailors. He was too young to have sailed in the War of the Spanish Succession, but he did go to sea shortly before the Golden Age of Piracy broke out. That's the same story for our final maybe the most interesting man to sail during the Golden Age of Piracy. I would hesitate to say that he's my favorite pirate, but certainly among the most complex. His name was Black Bartholomew Roberts. Roberts was also born in Wales, but first I'd like to talk for a second about the Welsh language. I'd like to try to use Welsh when possible when talking about these pirates, it's probably dumb, I don't speak Welsh, but it's one of the few surviving Celtic languages in the world. Moreover, it's kind of important to these pirates, because Howell Davis and Bartholomew Roberts both spoke Welsh, and after they began sailing together, that bound them together. They were able to conspire without their other pirates, or perhaps their victims, knowing what they were talking about. So I'm going to use the English names for certain places here in this description of his early life, but I'm also going to try to share the Welsh names. For anyone out there who actually speaks Welsh, well, I'm sorry for what I'm about to do. Bartholomew Roberts was born to a poor farmer named George Roberts. But according to the Welsh historian Terry Breverton, Way before he ever considered joining the ranks of pirates like Blackbeard and Black Sam Bellamy, this young man's name was already Black Bart. In Welsh, his nickname was Barty Thu. And just so you know my pain here, I should tell you that Thu is actually spelled D-D-U. That D-D is actually a letter in the Welsh alphabet, and it's pronounced kind of like a TH sound, but not a TH sound like they, where you drag your tongue along the bottom of your top teeth. Instead, it's pronounced like think, where you touch your tongue to the back of your front teeth and then kind of pull it back. That's what I'm working with here. Barty Thu literally meant Black Bart, and it's a nickname that, according to that historian, he had thanks to his black hair. And actually, Barty may have been a nickname as well. The baptismal records show him born as John Roberts. So I've been trying to figure out what Barty means in the Welsh language, but it's tough since there's actually several other languages, namely Somalian and Lithuanian, for which Barty is one of their more common names. According to a couple of random websites that gave me no sources on which they based their claims, in Welsh, Barty means, quote, The biggest thing you don't like is dependence. That's why freedom and independence are holding the highest priority for you. Hence, everything is new and unknown and piques your interest. You know, that's really not a bad description of Bartholomew Roberts, 
The other website says, quote, Creative and intuitive, you are a true character who will be remembered and noticed by others. Charismatic yet seductive, you put great importance on appearance and looks. A diplomat, but sometimes you can be stubborn. Not liking monotony, there is a desire to get moving. Disliking hierarchy, orders, patterns pushes you to find work still marked by unexpected factors and movement. That's an even more astute description of Bartholomew Roberts. So astute, in fact, it kind of makes me wonder if the name Barty is not, in fact, Welsh, but was introduced into the Welsh language by Bartholomew Roberts. See, there's another theory that Bartholomew Roberts may have chosen the name Bartholomew thanks to one of his own personal heroes, Bartholomew Sharp. It's all a bit murky, and we'll probably never know the real truth of it. But as a young Welsh boy in 1699, Barty Thu would have been a Methodist. Now, the Welsh Methodist Church was about to undergo a pretty significant revival in the 1730s, but here in 1699 their theology seems to have been based on three basic platforms. One, we don't like the English. Two, we really don't like the English Church. And three, we really, really don't like the English Puritans. From what I understand, it was something of a liberation theology that was based more on what they were opposed to, the English, than what they stood for. Although, as I said, that's all going to change in just a couple of decades. And the last real defining characteristic of Wales, something that would have been important to both Black Bart Roberts and Howell Davis, was just how poor it was. Wales was not a rich country by any means. Much like the West Country, you weren't going to get rich on any of the produce created there. The only way to do so was by going to sea and getting lucky. So if you were a rebellious young man from a tiny coastal village who grew up in that environment, maybe, you know, looking across the border from time to time and seeing the giant new palace being built for the Duke of Marlborough, how would you feel when you started hearing about this place across the ocean where men and women lived free? A place where they took what they wanted from England and asked no forgiveness. Might just sound attractive. So in the big picture here, for all of these pirates, we have a large number of young men and women who all had good reasons to be unhappy with their place in the British Empire. Their reasons were diverse but legitimate. However, it wasn't the sort of thing that could be solved just by joining some other imperial power. Things weren't any different in France or the Netherlands. If they were going to escape that, to make something better, they needed something new. While some of these future pirates were able to read and write, it's unlikely that any of them read any of the early Enlightenment philosophers. Maybe Olivier Lavoisier, who was at school in France, would have encountered some of the early French philosophes, but even that's unlikely. The English Enlightenment up to this point had been mostly a scientific Enlightenment. Think Francis Bacon and Isaac Newton. The big exception to that rule, though, was John Locke. And even if none of these pirates had ever read the writings of or even heard of John Locke, it's very likely that they would have been exposed to his ideas. Locke was a very early liberal, and often seen as an early libertarian. 
A number of his ideas are pretty problematic and lead to some of the major missteps that the American Founding Fathers would make, but Locke has two principles that are important to us today. First, he believed in a civil society, an organized populace that stood in opposition to its government. John Locke was an advocate for an armed defense of your life, your land, and your liberty. Naturally, none of this applied to women, or the Irish, or men without property, and, when he thought about property, that included enslaved human beings. His views on that topic were complicated, but that's where he landed. But if you were to ignore all that, his advocation for a civil society's right to revolution against their government was very important to the history of the world, but also to the pirates. Should your government become tyrannical, you were within your rights, even your duty, to oppose them. The other pillar of his philosophy relevant to our story was about the accumulation of wealth. If you were going to defend your liberty from the government, you required money to do so. John Locke saw the acquisition of as much capital as possible as a societal good. Basically, if we're ever going to overthrow the aristocratic yoke, we need a large middle class of free men that have guns and money. In retrospect, it looks a lot like America at the time of the revolution, or France at the beginning of their revolution. That's really a direct connection. That's what John Locke was talking about. But in the right light, I mean, Locke would have been horrified at all of the free black people and liberated women and poor people walking around like they owned the place, but if you really squint, you can see the first real application of Lockean views, you know, liberty, guns, and money, in the Pirate Republic at Nassau. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody that has left us ratings or reviews, they really help get the show out there. And everybody that has recommended this show to your friends and family, you all make this possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, I can't recommend highly enough Ben Franklin's World. You can find it at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music, as always, was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you have not checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, you can check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. There you can get in touch with me or find links to some of our other smaller, newer projects. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.
captain has died Let him live on in legend tonight